0: Welcome to the Planning Exchange podcast, a big shout out to all of our followers so far. For those of us who found us through iTunes, we encourage you to drop by our website, www.planningexchange.org to check out our other resources and a schedule of upcoming podcasts. The Planning Exchange will continue to release podcasts on a monthly basis on a range of urban subjects. We want our information to be relevant to both local and international listeners and hope to serve as a resource for other urban professionals. Today we're lucky to be joined by Stuart Morris, QC, who's very highly regarded in the urban development industry of Australia as one of the top QCs in planning and environmental law. Today we'll be talking to Stuart about his experiences of the world, individual and community rights, freedom and urban development into the future, amongst many other topical items. So over to you, Stuart. Are you able to just give us a brief introduction of your background?
1: Well, I've been involved in uh, arguing about Planning and development matters for most of my career. Um, I started as a barrister in 1976 and uh, then I've had that interrupted a couple of times. I, In the 1980s, I spent three years on the Planning Appeals Board and 18 months as Chairman of the Local Government Commission and then I returned to the bar. And then... Uh, between 2003 and 2007, I was on the Supreme Court of Victoria and also I was president of VCAT. But I see myself uh, first and foremost as a barrister and that's the career I intend to continue for the next 10 years.
0: And what were some of the um, advancements you made during your time at VCAT?
1: Well, uh, it's always hard to talk about these things, but My belief is that the most important thing that VCAT needs to do is make decisions promptly and fairly. And my focus was on ensuring that uh, decision-making was fair uh, so all the usual um, protections of rights were retained. But I was really keen to have decisions made more quickly. And when I was uh, president, we did manage to... Reduce the median time for planning cases from about 26 weeks down to 13 weeks, uh, and that I think is a, a very important goal because um, delayed decision making isn't in anyone's interest in this field.
0: No,
2: definitely
1: not, Stuart. Um, there's
2: some debate on the rights of the individual v community or communal rights. Where are you placed on on this?
1: Well, of course, I'm a libertarian. Um, I believe that uh, uh, individual rights and responsibility is uh, a cornerstone of a good society. Um, That doesn't mean we take it to absurd lengths uh, where everyone is carrying a gun and driving cars without seatbelts and so forth. Um, We do need to recognise we live in a a community um, and governments have a proper role to make sure that uh, the weak are protected uh, and that we uh, act in a sensible way. But by and large, we have far too many rules and regulations and they prevent uh, the individual uh, in too many situations from fully expressing uh, their uh, freedoms. Um, So I'm always uh, a believer that when we bring in a new rule, we have to ask ourselves, is it really necessary?
2: But, and getting to that point, why do you think there has been this growth in regulation?
1: Oh, there's a combination of things. Um, th- there's a lot of people who genuinely care about others. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing to care about others. But uh, sometimes that manifests itself in a way where they're really wanting to tell others how to live their lives. Uh, I think that if you care about others, you've also got to care about them having the freedom to make decisions and take responsibility for those decisions. Um, So um, the expression nanny state is sometimes used in this regard, uh, and and I think it's a good expression because it encapsulates what uh, what, what we mean... We've got to be very conscious to ensure that government intervention is smart uh, because far too often there is a case for government intervention, but the manner of intervention is not smart. It's blunt and dumb. And that's what we've got to avoid.
2: Okay. So, the the planning system uh, is it about gatekeeping, standardisation, or enabling?
1: Well, I think it's about all those things, really. It's very hard to just put one label on it. What what uh, we've got to remember is that town planning came about because the uh, unbridled market system produced many bad outcomes. And the classic one was where you had the toxic, toxic uh, industry next to uh, a residential estate. And town planning was designed to introduce some order into the marketplace uh, so as to maximise everyone's benefit. And clearly, um, it has done that. Uh, But sometimes, um, those who devise our plans um, uh, constrain the rights and opportunities that are available to people And that constraint is actually, in some instances, worse than solving the problem in the first place. I often think, you know, what are the sorts of places that people find fascinating and exciting? And uh, people talk about uh, uh, places all over the world uh, in that way that have evolved rather than have been um, uh, driven by some bureaucrat or town planner. Um, even in Melbourne, we have an area like Fitzroy, which I see has had the most dramatic increase in land values over the last year, uh, yet it's probably the least planned suburb in Melbourne. Uh, one uh, commentator once described its urban development as urban jazz because it had so much uh, mixture to it. Uh, to my way of thinking... Um, we really need to be careful about imposing too many constraints because we run the risk of losing some of that uh, diversity that's created by market forces, not by a bureaucratic imperative.
0: Do you also think then on that note that perhaps having too much regulation causes people to, um, to rebel against those rules and regulations?
1: Well, oh, it, it may well do so. Mm. When I was young, it used to be said if you wanted to uh, go out with a girl who would go that extra step, always get a, a Catholic who had been strictly controlled in her youth. So maybe there's <laughs> some uh, some truth in that comment that uh, um, if we constrain the system and those who are in the system too much, there will be rebellion. Uh, but I think more often, actually, it's frustration. Mm. It's frustration because um, sometimes the uh, hand of bureaucracy uh, has that dulling effect and people feel that they can't really try new things and uh, get on with it quickly Mm. uh, and experiment.
2: Mm. Uh, Stuart, I'm going to stand up for the bureaucrats. And uh, they are presumably acting in response to community pressures too, uh, to, to safeguard, to gatekeep to standardise?
1: Well, that's true, but, you see, um, there's a couple of comments I would make about that. That There is no no doubt that um, those who are constraining tend to be influenced by, if not driven by, local political uh, forces. But you've got to ask the question, well, who are those local political forces representing? Now, in the first place, they're representing those who are currently stakeholders and they don't represent at all well if at all those who will be future stakeholders.
2: So are we talking about intergenerational? Absolutely. I know that's a common topic at the
1: moment. Well partly that but it's partly uh, those who live in a particular area at the moment uh, don't represent those who would like to live in that area. Let's take Uh, a classic case of, uh, say, an apartment development. In most instances, apartment developments allow those who currently can't afford to live in a particular area the opportunity to live in that area. The political forces that are constraining that development are forces that represent the existing stakeholders in the area, not those who would like to live in that area. The other comment I'd make about this is that um, that the fear of the unknown is very powerful. Um, So often we uh, see circumstances where uh, some project has been widely feared and when it's built the reaction is, well, it's actually quite nice. Uh, We don't mind that at all. Uh, That's not an unusual reaction. Uh, uh, Indeed, I had a... Uh, an architect in here the other day, uh, who I represented four years ago, and uh, the project is now built. Uh, it's an apartment development in Hawthorne and I said, "Well, how's the reaction been?" And he said, "Well, most of the neighbours are now complimenting us on such an excellent building, when at the time they were resisting it strongly." And so this is another one of our reasons for constraints: is this fear of the unknown.
0: Do you think
1: that the same principle applies with um, large infrastructure projects? Oh, too right. Mm. I mean, uh, I represented the government in the case concerning the East-West Link. Now, of course, it looks like it's not going to go ahead now, so uh, I feel uh, able to speak about it. Uh, I've got no doubt it's a valuable project that Melbourne uh, will need in due course, whether it was the next priority, is a matter of debate and I can readily see why a government might say that uh, the Melbourne Metro project is a higher priority than East West Link. Uh, but uh, the opposition to that project, uh, in my opinion, was uh, jumping at shadows. And uh, um, and, and also the, uh, the, those who were vocal about it tended to be those in whose backyard... The project was Mm. to be built and didn't fully represent those who would benefit from or use the project. Mm -hmm. A common problem in planning um, and in resolving planning matters in Melbourne.
0: And what are your thoughts around public finance? How do you think this could be better utilised?
1: Well, I think this is actually probably, not just probably, is the most important matter that we need to focus on. Uh, If we're to create a better society uh, we need to focus on using the right tools and uh, I don't think that regulation which town planning schemes really are a manifestation of is uh, the best tool or at least it's not the best tool in a large number of circumstances. Rather we need to focus much more strongly on financial incentives and disincentives. To my way of thinking, uh, the beauty of those instruments is not only do they achieve better outcomes, but they do so whilst maintaining the freedom of the individual to make a decision that they choose. Uh, To my way of thinking, for example, um, we should be tolling all our urban freeways. That way, if you want to get from one side of Melbourne to the other uh, quickly, you can, provided you pay the price. Equally, the tolls that are collected will pay for those freeways or at least contribute substantially to their cost, uh, thus taking the burden off the taxpayer to provide that sort of facility. When it comes to public transport, we need to change the way we pay for the recurrent cost for public transport. In large part, public transport is a, a service to property, and it should be the owners of property, particularly those well-serviced by public transport, who are contributing to that cost. Because even if you don't use it, you're getting a benefit from its provision. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other examples in the public finance area I could give, but I see this as quite critical. To uh, achieving a, a not only a better society but a better uh, urban environment.
2: That raises the point, Stuart, that um, land economics and town planning and urban development it seems to have been decoupled in the last fifteen years. with Those notions,
1: absolutely, and 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 what you, you you'll get the decisions about uh, land economics being made by a treasury department and not by a planning department. Let me give you another example: uh, parking levies. We now have a levy on parking in the CBD and a number of other inner you know, urban areas. An excellent idea, as it's discouraging people from parking in areas that uh, uh, manifest itself with traffic congestion. But that was came, came from Treasury. That was Treasury's idea, and they drove it, and. Uh, It hasn't been uh, implemented very thoroughly. For example, on-street parking in central areas is far too inexpensive, uh, with the result that we actually get uh, wasteful traffic generation with people driving up and down looking for a parking space.
2: Um,
1: So so, so we really uh, need to bring uh, public finance into... um, We need to recognise that it's an excellent tool to implement our urban strategies.
2: Now, it seems that there's a whole idea of new ideas that you're raising. It's that sort of creative soup that where our new ideas bubble up and are formed. How can we encourage that process?
1: Uh, well... Uh, In 50 words or less. <laughs> bring people together. Um, promote um, lateral Discussion, lateral ideas in discussion. Um, not freeze people out because they've got a new idea that hasn't been tested. Uh, ensure that uh, um, we maintain discretion in our planning decision making rather than have rules for everything. Um, there's some of the ways, but look, it's, 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 it, there's no formula for having good ideas. Um, What we need, though, is to create an environment where good ideas are more likely to come forward and um, manifest themselves. I mean, Ed Gleiser, who wrote the book The Triumph of the City, he commented that uh, if you have people working and living close by to each other, they bounce their ideas off each other with the result that the good ideas uh, go forward. Um, and, and I think that uh, that's probably, to the extent that there is a formula, the only one I can advance.
2: Our last interview subject, Tim Bars, was talking about the need for courage in planning. Any thoughts?
1: Well, I think you need courage in life. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether it's just in planning. Uh, the, the, what's been beaten out of people is a willingness to take risks. It's been beaten out of uh, our kids when they go to school. It's been beaten out of our kids when they uh, study for exams uh, and so on and so forth. Um, I I firmly believe that risk-taking is an essential part of life. Uh, Sure, you've got to measure the probabilities and the consequences of making the wrong choice, But um, we need to take more risks generally. Um, I think uh, um, uh, Tony Liston, who was a VCAT member, made a very good speech once when when he commented that uh, he'd taken a lot of risks and he'd approved a lot of development in his time. But he said uh, uh, if if he got it all wrong, it wouldn't actually take that long to demolish the buildings and he calculated (laughs) the time. Now, I think we need to take more risks... And obviously that includes this question of having greater courage.
0: Do you think people are afraid of taking risks because of the backlash from community groups, which which occurs as a common consequence of most town planning applications?
1: Well, they're afraid of taking risks because uh, they're scared of the criticism mm. if the decision uh, turns out adversely. Um, but, you know... If you take a few risks, what you'll tend to find is that ninety percent of what you do comes up very positively mm. and the ten percent that um, is negative is vastly outweighed by all those positive outcomes whereas if you don't take any risks you don't get the positive outcomes mm. uh, i'm not talking about reckless, wild <sighs> risks like you've you know like you might take after you've had a a night on the town, (laughs) Uh, I'm talking about sensible risk-taking where you uh, come across a new situation and you're willing to try a new way of solving a problem, whether it be in public finance or building form uh, or whatever. Uh, That's the sort of thing I think we should be more adventurous about.
2: On, On that adventurous, how do you see architecture being handled in the planning world, new architecture?
1: By and large, pretty well. Uh, I think that uh, in, in Victoria, uh, our system has um, provided architects with a reasonable scope to paint there to paint on. Their, their. But uh, compared with some other parts of Australia, where the rules are uh, more formulaic. Um, we can look at some lovely buildings we've got in Melbourne over the last twenty years. Some not exciting buildings, I should have called them. Mm. Uh, um, when you when you get a building like the Eureka Tower, you can't help but admire it. I can see it from my place at Cape Shank. Uh, on a on, the, on a uh, at sunset. Uh, it lights up like a candle from what sixty kilometres away. Mm. It's just magical. Um, Now, of course, not all buildings are of that ilk, but nonetheless, um, I don't think that uh, that's the problem so much. Um, Although in in some instances, obviously, it can be constraining.
2: With um, third-party rights, they've been demonised a bit as being breaks on development. Where do you sit on this third-party rights
1: I've always been a supporter of third party rights um, but uh, where where they fall into disrepute is when uh, they cause a lot of delays. Uh, One of the reasons why uh, I believe that planning disputes have to be resolved quickly uh, is because otherwise third parties can hold up a decision Um, and so I see the time taken for the system to work as strongly linked to the question of third-party rights. Uh, Sadly, what's happened is that councils and VCAT are are each taking longer to make decisions for a variety of reasons, Uh, and as a result of that, third-party rights are the easy thing to discredit. Imagine if a council made a decision within two months of receiving the application. And imagine if VCAT then made a decision within 13 weeks after the lodgement of an appeal to VCAT. In other words, we're imagining a world where, from woe to go, it would be less than six months. If that were the case, I rather doubt that there'd be such a concern about third-party rights. But in practice, for any significant development using a variety of little tricks, I'll call them. The council often takes four or five months or longer and uh, VCAT's more like six months. So we're talking about a year, sometimes 18 months. Uh, Naturally, with those sorts of delays, third parties are going to be blamed.
2: How do you change that culture?
1: Uh, There's only one way and that is by constant... uh, Vigilance. Um, inertia is, uh, and conservatism are part of the problem. Conservatism, in that the council will say, well, we need an arborist report, or now we need a landscape architect's report, and now we need this report, uh, a root expert report, or whatever. Um, that's conservatism. And inertia, well, you know, we're all guilty of that, putting off to tomorrow what we could have done today. Uh, so vigilance is the only way. I mean, some states, they uh, have said, if you don't make a decision within a certain time, it's deemed to have been granted or deemed to have been refused. And we even have that aspects of that in our building approval system. Um, I don't think that's a very good answer because um, when things are deemed to go this way or that way, it tends to then uh, provoke a decision immediately before the deeming date that uh, is an ill-considered decision. So I don't think that's really the answer. Could people gain the system,
2: whatever it is. If...
1: Absolutely.
0: So how do we give weight to what actually matters? Um, is it, again, taking a risk and putting forward what we think is the is uh, uh, real...? Of
1: course you have to take a risk, but if you're a decision-maker... Um, the the most important thing is to work out what is important and what's not important. Uh, I've often said um, to VCAT members and others that most cases turn on one, two or three key elements and even though in the argument before you 20 or 30 might be raised, ultimately it's those one, two or three that matter. And the uh, key skill the decision-maker has to learn is how to identify those one, two or three matters. Because if you can identify what really matters, generally analysing what is the right outcome is straightforward. Where I think that decision-makers go wrong more often than not is that they fail to identify what really matters. Mm. Um, and, and, And... sometimes that you have to be courageous about that um, because um, what really matters might not be the matter that the parties think really matters.
2: Is this, Stuart, part of the information overload that we've had? I mean, you would notice that in your career, the, the amount of information you receive presumably has gone up exponentially since when you started.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, as a barrister... Uh, often I would get a brief now that's in three volumes. And I'm not talking about three small volumes, I'm talking about three large arch-folder volumes. Uh, My practice is to sort through that and try and reduce the content to one small folder, about a sixth of the original, and include in that small folder the things that I believe are important. Um... And in the vast majority of cases, it's not a difficult exercise. Uh, You need to not only be a quick reader, but you actually need to be a selective reader. Mm. That is to work out what bits you must read, what bits you can simply peruse, and what bits you don't have to look at at all. Mm. Um, And uh, I don't know whether that skill's being taught that much these days, but it's an essential skill. Just as in terms of that's in terms of uh, your input, when it comes to your output, uh, one of the things that I would like people to be better at is the old art of pracy, that is reducing uh, a, a large volume of words down to fifty words or a hundred words, um, because that skill requires you to think clearly about what matters. Mm.
0: So projecting forward, what would you like to see in the urban development industry?
1: Well, um, I'd like there to be a conscious decision made in every case where intervention by government is thought desirable as to what tool we should use. Um, We should not automatically think that regulation is the right tool in every situation. There are other tools. There are incentives. There is education. There are economic tools like taxes or subsidies. Uh, we always must think, is there a way of achieving this without another set of rules that can people have to comply with? Uh, for example, I'd love to uh, see us... Uh, tackle traffic congestion, not just by building more roads or building more train lines or whatever, but by regulating the demand for roads using our pricing system. We now have the ability of it uh, to do that with uh, uh, tags in in cars. Um, Wouldn't it be sensible if um, we let people travel for free on roads when they're empty, but charge them Mm. when they're full. Mm -hmm. Because by charging them, what we're doing is within saying, well, if you value this ability to move um, at a reasonable speed during busy times, you can pay for it. Mm. You have a choice. And if you do exercise that choice, then you get a a benefit as a result. To me, it's just classic... uh, market theory mm.
2: there, on the on the flip side, Stuart, there is the issue that a lot of people don 't have choice in the urban in the urban model that we 've set up. a lot of people live in outer suburbs most people live in the outer suburbs they don 't have a choice
1: well well people do have choices uh, I agree that some people um, are constrained in their choices, assuming we use the Uh, a market model for allocating road space, Uh, I agree some people are going to have less choice than others, but the way to solve that is to ensure that the income available to all Australians is fair. Uh, In other words, we ensure that those who don't have a job can um, get support while they're looking for a job. Those who uh, can't work for one reason or another get income support If you uh, uh, wanted to buy a product, uh, you'd go to the shop and uh, you'd be told X, Y and Z about the product and you'd have no way of checking it. Now, of course, you can um, go online and you can find out not only all about the product but uh, where else you can buy it and so on. It's given us so much freedom. I mean, Uber is an example of it where... Um, technology has uh, enabled peer to peer communication um, and I see that as becoming more and more common I, I see uh, the expression disruptive technologies is there for a good reason that is we 're disrupting the the established order but uh, i don 't want it to be thought that I see that as a bad thing i 'm all for disruption uh, It's a very creative thing. Um, There's a famous uh, uh, paper written, I think, in the 1960s by Thomas Kuhn, uh, where it's explained that most scientific progress comes about when someone thinks outside the square, uh, where the uh, paradigm that has defined scientific thought about a particular matter is somehow broken apart. Um, and and I think that that applies not only in the area of science, but um, in the area of planning and urban development. And uh, I see this as a very creative thing, which we... Uh, it, it, does, it doesn't feel creative if you're the one being disrupted. <laughs> but um, uh, nonetheless, it, it's it ought to be encouraged.
0: So just coming back to the libertarian approach, a theme in your comments earlier, what would you like our listeners to mull over?
1: Well, I'd like them to mull over this. I'd like them to consider uh, next time we think that the government should do something about this or that to dwell on uh, not just whether it's desirable to do something but to focus very much on what we should do because the means of intervening is often just as important as the decision to intervene. And when it comes to the means of intervening, I'd like um, focus to be on how we might do it while still allowing the individual to make a choice, while still allowing the individual the freedom to uh, do it the way they want to do it. Um, And there are many ways, I think, using economic incentives and disincentives where we can go down that line. Mm-hmm.
0: And any recommendations for planners and designers out there? Oh. In your closing comments for sure. Have Shana? I got any recommendations?
1: <laughs> well, uh, <Chips>. I suppose <laughs> the, the most important recommendation is um, be bold. Have a go. Uh, don't let the bastards get you down. <laughs> um, I think that's the most important thing. Uh, Far too often, what we see is regurgitation of ideas. Um, Someone is told, design this or design that, and they regurgitate what's gone before. Uh, You get it in the law too. You'll notice that um, often a, a submission made at VCAT looks very similar to the submission that was made last week and the one made the week before, even though the subject matter might be quite different or the key issue is substantially different. Um, So have a go. Uh, Don't worry about how it's been done previously. Uh, As Frank Sinatra would say, do it your way.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Stuart. Thank you to all who've tuned in to this podcast. We trust that Stuart's provided you with some thought-provoking ideas and insight into some of the issues currently rippling through the urban development industry. Just a reminder to our listeners to also check out our website, www.planningexchange.org, where you'll find further information on all of our past and future guests. Thank you, Stuart.
1: Relax
2: your body.
0: What makes you... The
1: exception. To get ready to fly. The history of the future. With the wideband band circuits, break it down into thousand-bit packets, and a message will go back, such as this: all over the world. Rewriting, we'll recreating we'll the same old programs over oh. and over and over. For example, to be simple, bulky
0: and heavy, wideband transmission facilities. There is some resistance to the changes that people can have. Human institutions. What was
1: wrong with the world? You were somebody. People turn up the pace. Music industry. Delicious. The world is over. Intellectual content. And faster and
2: more reliable. On a fully connected network. Why am I doing this? You can lose consciousness.
1: Radiant faces.
0: What makes you an exception? Every club in London.
2: They began to recognize.